Welcome to the Royal Diaries Unlocking History. My name is Felicia. My name is Julia. We are sisters who love books, history, and talking about them both. We're doing a deep dive into the Royal Diaries series. Come with us as we learn about the girls who became women that shaped history. All right, here we are. Anastasia, the last Grand Duchess. It is by Caroline Meyer. Mm -hmm. She wrote Isabel, right? Yes, who did Isabel, which was a bummer bell. This one also in the same way yeah, as well, a, a bummer bell. A bummer. But <clears throat> the brief description is a novel in diary form in which the youngest daughter of Tsar Nicholas II describes the privileged life of her family up until the time of World War I and the tragic events that befall them. Well, that's pretty much that. <laughs> oh, gosh. There's going to be a lot of size on my end, just so you know. I feel like there's going to be size also if we don't punctuate this with a lot of quotes from the 1997 classic Anastasia Anastasia movie. Oh my gosh. I don't know if we'll be letting down the fans or not. Or would we be annoying the fans? I feel like people, just so you all know, we acted out this movie to our babysitter at one point. Yeah. You know how some kids will play dress up or something? We did an entire reenactment of the movie, beat by beat. Song by song. Song by song, running around the house. With costume changes. With costume changes and multiple character changes. We planned out, too, when there's the bridge scene at the very end. Okay, Felicia. I'm like, this has to be on the staircase because I'm it's the only place where they're the height. Julia, you go over the edge. I'll pretend to be hanging on to you. And it's a big thing. It was a thing. Anastasia is one of those very difficult character person. There's a lot to get into with her. But it's interesting because she only lives 17 years. That is not a long life. Not a lot can happen in 17 years to one person. Yes, a lot of things happened around her. Mm-hmm. But for her as the individual that we know... Anastasia has had a hell of a life after death. And that really is the majority of what people in general know or think about her. And then anytime someone tries to get into the truth behind Anastasia, they really just get into the nitty gritty and sad graphic details about what caused the Russian Revolution and how did the Bolsheviks take over and all this other kind of stuff. Let's go and talk in graphic detail too about how she and her sisters died. And how her family was horribly brutal murdered because it's always a spoiler alert they died spoiler alert it was worse than you thought and I personally I feel like you can easily obtain that knowledge elsewhere I don't really want to get into too much graphic detail but I'm jumping ahead Mm -hmm. we really should talk about the book first yes we should so please tell me about your thoughts upon rereading Anastasia the last grand duchess So I just want to say that before I read the book, the only thing I really remembered about this book was that they took cold baths. (laughs) And then I remember going and taking a cold bath myself just to see what that was like. And then being like, this is terrible. Why would you do that? I don't care if I feel more refreshed. This is awful. Never again. I will say, though, if you uh, do find yourself uh, sans air conditioning in the middle of the summer, treating your bathtub like its own mini pool with tepid, cooler water... 
is very refreshing. Oh, but I believe it. If it was wake up at the crack of dawn in the middle of winter time in Russia to have a bath and it'd be cold because your dad is trying to pseudo be an army guy and I'm just a, I'm not a king and a autocrat. I'm just a regular kind of guy who likes cold baths and plain food. Who are you fooling, Nikki? You are not a regular kind of dude. <laughs> I remember also thinking that like it jumped forward and moved around a lot and then yeah. I couldn't remember if I was recalling that correctly. So then going and then rereading it again, it really like it really reads like a combination of greatest fashion hits, which you know I'm never gonna be pressed about. Mm-hmm. But then I don't know, it was just it was just sad, right? The stinger at the end too as well, with her like, giving the diary to was it like her nanny? Yeah, or like a servant or who is just not gonna go with them upon to their quote-unquote final destination which ended up being their actual final final destination destination. that's just a moment of i think what's really interesting though is we pay so much attention oh how horrible their life was at the very end but really reading the book my goodness like the monotony of the of their nothingness the fact that the war happening was the most exciting thing in their lives because Mm -hmm. then they converted one of the palaces into an infirmary Alex and her daughters Olga and Tatiana got to at least be nurses so there was something actually happening because the rest of their days their mom didn't roll out of bed till 11 and then she would be oh I'm so tired I have to go back you're not tired you are just just depressed depressed. and I think and and, (sighs) it's like and Alexandria is such a complicated person let's also talk about the amount of food and body shaming that it's just peppered throughout it Mm -hmm. Anastasia will talk about her favorite types of food Mm -hmm. and then one of her sisters just makes a mean comment like if you eat any more bellini like what are these like buttery pancakes you're gonna turn into a bellini and all this other kind of stuff because like let's be honest she never got to be older than a high school senior she was a teenager Mm -hmm. and she also had no offense somewhat times mean older sisters yeah and And, uh but but also what was interesting as well is they were such an insular group and unit they define themselves by their first initials like they don't even get to have their own single singular identities and i think that was something that really did get conveyed well in the book it's kind of funny right because like in the same way that we've talked about in previous books like you know you these are young women who have in many ways very little power right mm-hmm. to actually go and do anything about or with their lives even though they have quote-unquote every luxury taken care of and are much better conditions clearly than the majority of other people but again how sad and how I hate to say low-key pathetic their lives are well and I think the parallels between Anastasia and Marie Antoinette are huge just in terms of they're the last of their kind Mm -hmm. and Marie Antoinette is at the end of the 1700s and that's the end of like autocratic rule in a western European country and here we are at the beginning of the 1900s and we still have this same autocratic draconian backwards way of government i think for me i was just wow how little nothing changes and slow the wheels of progress are allowed to turn yeah especially in russia yeah definitely be you know sharing a lot more additional resources and things like that because there is so much now especially because anastasia was always a fave of mine Mm -hmm. i feel she ties into just not only because of the animated film that was out when we were when we were younger but I think just the appeal of her and that's something I'm going to get into which mm-hmm. is she's so well documented the Romanovs 
were obsessed with photography. Yes. And so she lives on in not just a formal portraiture way, but in a royals, they're just like like us us kind kind of way way. that makes her feel so accessible. I mean, the fact that we literally have photo of her that she took in a freaking mirror. Yeah, she took like a selfie selfie with her brownie box camera. So I think that the relatable factor and the more sort of anecdotal things that get parsed out over Mm -hmm. time about her. When you're younger, you relate to her because even though she's a princess, you're like, I I too get into trouble or I also feel this way about my siblings or whatever. And then as you get older, for me especially, every time I hit one of the birthdays... Where you were older than one of the girls. When I was older than one of the girls. When I turned 17 and then I turned 18, I was, I'm now older than Anastasia ever was. Because I also felt like in a similar way too as well. And Mm -hmm. like we even talked about it. Yeah. It's obviously we do get to go and live a certain life, certain privileges, certain opportunities. But still, wow, I'm so young. I have so much life and things that I have left to go and do and they never got to go and do it. And that is really, that is really tragic. That sort of feeling thing of like arrested development plays throughout this entire book, not just with Anastasia, but with her family and then like the country and everything. So Caroline Meyer, she did a pretty good job considering it's, you know, the end of this story. Mm -hmm. So let me try to peel back and let you know who is this person before the end. Well, yeah. And And I I think she really did a wonderful job of fleshing her out Mm -hmm. as a a holistic person. Exactly. As well as you can. We're we're leading with died very young under circumstances. Well, very young. Anastasia is the youngest by far. She is technically becoming an adult. She is a child when she is killed. Let's not focus just on her death. Anastasia has had a very rich life after death, more Mm -hmm. than people realize. Categories that I've brought to discuss are sort of real Anastasia and the family situation. Okay. Then we got to talk about the horrible true events because it plays into later on. Okay. When we talk about the end of the Romanov dynasty, it's not just this family that were killed in a basement. It's how the entire family was decimated in different ways. Well, the, it also just wasn't like the immediate royal family. Didn't they throw down one of their cousins down a freaking mine shaft to kill him? Uh, yeah, they. that was Anastasia's aunt. Yeah. Yeah. And so then the media and the Romanovs, sort of where that comes in, and then wrapping up with religious worship and historical revisioning. Okay. And the sort of how the the saga never ends because somebody always wants to lay claim to people after death in different ways. And it's very interesting how it just keeps popping up. Mm-hmm. So Grand Duchess Anastasia Nikolaina was born June 18th, 1901. And she's the youngest daughter of Tsar Nicholas II. And the last Tsar's miniseries, Netflix, when they tried to make history sexy, I disapprove of their means of doing this. However, I do agree with their casting of Snack Nicky uh, with his very historically accurate dragon tattoo, which he got when he was a young man on Gapya in Japan. I just want to say that he's the original boy of the dragon tattoo. He is, actually. So that's my tangent to say The Last Tsars of Russia on Netflix is what? But at the same time, Nikki is a snack. Tsarina Alexandra, a German princess. That is definitely played up in the book, and especially her love of Victoria, her great grandmother, and mm-hmm. et cetera, like that. But she was not the star of the family. Her birth was greeted with disappointment at the royal court and the palaces of their European royal cousins because of the country's strict rule of male succession. My God, what a disappointment. A fourth girl, said Nicholas's sister, Xenia. So, <laughs> I mean... 
mean, this sounds like Karen of Aragon. It, she only had one child. The woman tried six times. I know. She had a lot of miscarriages, for goodness sake. Let her go. Anastasia is not a traditional Russian imperial name. Mm-hmm. The famous, well, there was the famous Anastasia who was picked to be the wife of Ivan the Terrible. I do but remember that. after the reign of Ivan the Terrible ended, that's when Mikhail Romanov, who is an obscure cousin, was plucked. And he started the line 300 years before this. But Anastasia is actually Greek, meaning resurrection. Maybe with the name Nicholas and Alexandra, we're hoping to express a profoundly held belief that God would answer prayers and the Russian monarchy would be resurrected with the birth of a son. So basically, your name meaning is not not the boy we wanted. Because they had Olga, Tatiana, and Marie. The pressure is definitely on for them to have this boy. Tsarevich Alexei is finally born, but unfortunately he has hemophilia, aka the blood disease, which ran throughout the entire European nations of families, coming from Queen Victoria, the fact that she had nine children, and all the girls were carriers of hemophilia, Mm -hmm. so as they married and had children, it scattered throughout the royal houses in Europe. Because they were not genetically mixed up enough. Yes, this is what, again, too much crisscross applesauce in breeding happens. Oh, God. Back to Alexei being sickly. And the, the very sad reality is if you have hemophilia back in the 1800s, you're probably not going to see very far into adulthood. So that's really depressing. Yeah. So your long-awaited son is a ticking time bomb who could go at any minute. And there's no point. And that's the whole thing, though. Did they try to have another kid? But or? even if they did, it he, doesn't matter. It, it's done. Any sons they have, it's a roll of the dice. But especially with how much trying there was at this point, we can't, yeah. you know. Alexandra herself sickly. Or, you know, maybe going and, like, pushing out five children in pretty rapid succession will probably do a number on your body that and might too. make you up depressed. Well, and she was also, even though she was wholeheartedly said, like, I want to be a Russian, you know, she would try to speak the language, but she had a bad accent. Everyone made fun of her. She converted from Lutheranism to Orthodoxy, but she was just very reluctant to mix with Russian society. The family lived almost like recluses, even though the Romanov Empire covered one-sixth of the globe. They hardly ever left Palak's complex Tarsko Salo. Despite the tense atmosphere inside the palace and simmering violence outside, Russia had had a near revolution in 1905 before the one in 1917. Grand Duchess Anastasia grew up into an energetic child. She was the shortest of the daughters and the least ethereal, with dark blonde hair and blue eyes. What everyone remarked on was her quickness and sense of humor. She loved mischief, playing tricks, and not all of them nice. Anastasia was known to trip people. She's kind of a shit show. Her cousins complained that she played too rough. Anastasia didn't seem to care. Pure tomboy. She climbed trees, adored animals, ate chocolates with gloves on. She was a brilliant mimic and shone in family theatricals. She disliked her lessons and showed little aptitude for grammar or spelling, but she was considered by some to be the most intelligent of the four daughters. As we can see, Anastasia, yeah, she's got to, you know, try to steal as much attention as she can get Mm -hmm. when she can get it. Totally. Despite the idea of there being one big happy Romanov family, there was discord. On one hand, there was Nicholas and Alexandra, both stringent and pious, influenced by things like dark and cold, lonely childhoods, stresses of ruling an empire as vast and nearly crumbling as Russia, burdens of maintaining 
a perfect family image. Question. Yes. Did they like each other, like, oh. as a couple? Oh, no, they were obsessed with each other. Really? They They met when they were very young. Okay. And he loved her, and he wanted to be with her, and his parents were like, no, you're not going to marry this German nobody princess. And he's like, no, it's Alex or no one. And then it wasn't until his dad was dying, and he was, dad, I'm going to be king, and you don't want me to be single. And he's fine. You can marry her. And they used to give each other secret gifts and presents, and they wrote love letters and all this other stuff. And in a in a truly romantic but trashy rich people way, because rich people don't have to think about property damage, mm-hmm. he used to take her diamond rings and stuff and carve their initials into the window plates. Oh, my so they, God. They so were, they were truly a love match. They supported each other in the best way. They both were, we don't like being the center of attention. We don't like crowds. But they supported each other in the worst way because you have to be the center of attention and get over yourself and like crowds if you're going to be the supreme rulers. If they were a regular couple, not pushing your boundaries of what you do and do not like to do is fine. But yeah. if you want to be in a leadership position, yeah. Yeah, there are, there are sacrifices. After they had their family, their idea was our role is done. Now we can just be a happy family to ourselves. The more glamorous of their relatives considered the emperor and empress pathetically quaint and obsolete. The same cousins eschewed the idea of Russianness as Nicholas and Alexander saw it. They didn't bother concerning themselves with state matters because as they saw it, they were not the czar's wife. Most of them spoke French better than Russian and traveled to glamorous spa towns and more often than not did not consider Russia home. So you have all these Romanovs basically being fat cats all over Europe laughing at Nicholas and Alexandra who are trying to be good Russian people. They're getting criticized from their own level of Mm -hmm. people but they're also being criticized from the bottom of people. You people are so out of touch you don't even know what it's like to live a real life. Nobody likes them. Yeah exactly. That's yeah. Yeah. The Romanov clan lived hedonistic lifestyles. According to Nicholas's sister Grand Duchess Olga the last generation did not live up to their standards or traditions of the family. They lived in a world of self-interest where little mattered except the unattended personal desire and gratification. Sounds like a lot of people today who may or may not be a meats. So they were basically acting like every other rich, spoiled, bored member of a famous family. <laughs> oh, God. Oh, Phil, insert your preferred famous family here. here. The emperor and his wife, although by no means effective rulers, kept to themselves and their children separate from the rest of the family. But the problem is, is no matter how Nicholas tried to distance himself from scandals or tried to stop it, in the eyes of the Russian citizens, he's just as culpable as his corrupt relatives. Your supreme leader. You have all the power. So how can you be it's out of my control? What is it? Either he didn't do enough to stop it or he was part of it. The lasting image of all the Romanovs was none of them had any sort of self-control and they all lived a life of opulence. The years between the Franco-Prussian War in 1874 and World War I starting in 1914 were known as the Belle Epoque. Mm-hmm. My favorite time. Seen as the greatest time in Europe. And the Romanovs along with all the dynastic houses in Europe took advantage of this golden era according to the higher classes. When war began it changed the scope of Europe especially Especially the old traditional class distinction. The interconnected royal families all either suddenly died out in the case of Germanic principalities or entered into war against each other. Ooh. So the Romanovs eventually collapsed when Nicholas was pressured to abdicate during World War I because he was viewed as an incompetent military leader and chaos was reigning throughout the country. People are starving. People are dying. Yeah and the thing is so this isn't like from what I remember and you can correct me if I'm wrong. He truly was not good at his job. The problem 
problem was is that unlike so many other leaders or rulers who even though they seem that they have singular power or at least they have the image of you are the one in charge really they know what their strengths and limitations are and they find people who actually can step in do those certain jobs at one point when they were losing in the military front Nicholas with no military experience was I should be in charge of the army because that's what you do when you're the czar and everyone's what I Nicholas who have never baked a pastry am now going to go and become head pastry chef of this very important factory that needs to crank out perfect pastries lest we all die essentially it just it was terrible and unfortunately the family was sort of fallout from this so as the family was in prison so first they were under house arrest at the palace before later being shipped off to Siberia Anastasia did her best to keep everyone's spirits up although being denied outdoor activity must have been very hard on her Sounds like quarantine. Yep. She sewed, she read and painted, and waited for her things to end in rescue, exile, or escape. Real question, though. Mm-hmm. Didn't they have a plan? Then they realized that, you know, this is probably not looking good. We should probably leave. <laughs> well, this is the thing. In preparation, or it's sort of rumored in preparation for their escape, was they had sewn all their personal jewels into their clothing because mm. if they did manage to escape or if someone actually came to rescue, them, which would probably be more likely, mm. they would have something to bribe and do something with it. Unfortunately, that isn't what happened because on July 17th, 1918, the unthinkable happened. Anastasia, holding her dog Jimmy, followed the family down the stairs to the terrible cellar in Yekaterinburg where they were told to wait. Do we really need to go and get into this? Not, like... not too much, but this is important though to know why because the White Army. Because right now, Russia was fighting World War One, but Russia then was also fighting an internal civil war. I mean, they have the, a lot of land. You could have a lot of So war the White there. Army was trying to come in to defeat the Red Army. I'm going to link to a great Russian History 101 thing that people can watch if they want. Mm-hmm. But essentially, all you need to know is the White Army is too close. They could get their hands on the Tsar, reinstate a puppet, side government, or a government in exile. Mm-hmm. And that will never be free. The man in charge of the soldiers, Yarkov, Yorsky read quickly off a sheet of paper, the revolution is dying and you must die with it. So the family and their servants were arrayed against a far wall and they were killed by a dozen men. Anastasia, like I said, she was just 17, was the last to die, according to later testimony, and the killers did not spare her pet. Then- oh no, they killed her dog too? Yes. I actually cleaned I that up very I, much so, people, because I don't need to get into it. But let's just say we it's have- kind of like when I went and I said, I don't really want to go and get into Marie Antoinette's trial and all the terrible things that they said about her. This is going to sound terrible, but I remember more vividly reading about the horrible way in which Anastasia and her sisters died than I do any of the nice things about her, which, you know, I really at one point would like to go and change in my brain. Yes. The aftermath math is critical to understanding how does Anastasia quote-unquote live okay okay so then they said about destroying the evidence so first they removed the bodies to Ganayama about 25 kilometers away then they put them in a, a well in a pit and tried to dissolve them in acid I didn't know about that but they didn't bring enough acid to destroy the bodies so when local villagers were asking questions the soldiers then retrieved the bodies and looked around for another place to bury them the Bolsheviks eventually settled on a field called 
called Profensco Vlog. All you have to do is... But all you need to know is that they were buried two times in two separate places. That was four kilometers away. Okay. This wasn't the beginning or the end of the desperate plight of the Romanovs. Because like I said, when people think, oh, the end of the Romanovs, they just think about Nicholas, Alexandra, and, and the, kids. the kids. No. Instead, a few weeks earlier, the Tsar's brother, Mikhail, whose favor Nicholas abdicated for in March 1917, was shot in another Serbian wood the day after Nikki's sister-in-law, Elizabeth and Abbas, his cousin Sergei, and his nephews Ivan, Konstantin, and Vladimir and Igor were beaten and thrown down a half-flooded mine shaft near Yekaterinburg. From the bottom of the shaft, some 60 feet down, those who survived the fall were unnerving their Bolshevik guards by singing Orthodox prayers until the soldiers finally got fed up. They tossed grenades in. Oof. But autopsies later revealed that they might have taken days to die. Oof. The last group of executed Romanovs took place in 1919 at the Peter and Paul Fortress in Petrograd. After months of imprisonment, Tsar's cousins, Nicholas, Dmitri, and George, his uncle Paul, were lined up at the edge of a mass grave. Scores of foreign and Russian dignitaries had pleaded with the Bolshevik government for their release. Rejecting one such petition, submitted by the William Maxim Gorky on behalf of Grand Duke Nicholas Mikhailovich, the chairman of the Imperial Russian Historical Society, Vladimir Lenin said, the revolution does not need historians. I do love reading Lenin's biography. He was a bitch, and I love him in some ways. But he was an actual bitch. But he was a bitch at some points. And his wife's nickname was Fishface. <laughs> well, she had that disease that means you have too much liquid, so her eyes bulged out of her eye sockets. I just remember that from my Russian history no, class I... about the Soviet Union. His, uh, his revolutionary wife, Fishface. Oh my god. So it's estimated by 1920 that of the 53 Romanovs living at the time of the Bolshevik seizure, only 35 remained alive. Those who could flee Russia by whatever means possible fled by foot and by boat. Dozens of Romanovs, including Nicholas's mother, Maria Fedorova, his sister Zenia, her husband Alexander, were evacuated from the Crimean estate by warships sent by the royal relative George V of England. George and Nikki were cousins. And they look almost identical. Because their mothers were sisters. So I love looking at the pictures of them together because then I think of that heartbreaking scene in Secret Garden where oh Mary God. discovers that her mother was a twin Ugh. kind of thing. So Anastasia Anastasia plays into Secret Garden so hard. It really freaking does. It's a orphan core. Yeah, that genre of orphan core. <laughs> like 1800s lost little girl who has too much money and too much time on her hands but just needs a good love. Yeah, needs to feel that sense of belonging. Yeah. In Europe, they joined thousands of Russian emigres driven out by the land from Bolsheviks terror. Stateless, largely destitute and shell-shocked, the Romanovs had learned to live without the country whose stewardship had been their duty for three centuries and to mourn those left behind. That the survivors couldn't bury the dead made their situation harder. Of all the murdered Romanovs, only one was interred, Nicholas's cousin Dmitri. His corpse was rescued from a mass grave by a former servant and buried in the yard of a private house. The bodies of those executed down the well, though retrieved by royalist forces from the mine pit, were moved further east, hostages of the changing forces of retreating whites. Those remains ended up in a Russian cemetery in Beijing, which was demolished in 1957 and now is a car parking lot. The embodies of the imperial family couldn't be found. Despite an intensive search carried out by a criminal investigator named Nikolai Solokov during the White Army's brief occupation of Yekaterinburg, according
According to one persistent rumor that never substantiated, the heads of Nicholas and Alexandra couldn't be found because they would have been delivered to Lenin as proof of their eradication. To her last breath, the Tsar's mother waited for a letter from her unfortunate Nicky, refusing to believe newspaper accounts of his death. Shortly after his arrival in Paris in 1920, Slokov, by then also in exile in Europe, tried to hand over to the Romanovs a box containing what he said was evidence he managed to assemble from Ganayama, where the bodies had allegedly been destroyed. But the Romanovs did not accept the offer. I don't really blame them. I get it. Yeah. The disbelief at the fall of, of Imperial Russia and desperation among Russian community and international public who had romanticized the Romanovs ignited desire for a survivor following the disappearance. The Soviets' deliberate campaign of subterfuge about the family's fate, both to hide the botched savagery of their execution and stamp out the reverence of Russia's czarist past, coupled with the escape of indomitable matriarch of the dynasty, Dowager Empress Marie, and her refusal to declare anyone dead, helped fuel outlandish speculation and the most infamous of Romanov imposters, Anna Anderson. Peppermint and oil from my hands. <laughs> I spilled the bottle. bottle. Don't. We'll quote the entire movie. <laughs> Carpet was soaked. Oh, I used to lie there when you went away. I used to come here. To Paris. Yes. Let's talk about Anna Anderson. (laughs) What do you know of Anna Anderson? The most infamous not Anastasia. Uh, I remember that one photo of her looking really fly with her Peter Pan collar. (laughs) I also know that she was like, you think of every trope you can think of. There was amnesia. There was being spirited away. Fake jewelry. Archive research to get the memories right. There was insisting until literally they needed to go and test her DNA to be like, no. You're not. Anastasia. That woman would have put Maury to like test. Myth and religion versus science and fact. What do you want to believe? The fairy tale or the science? So, well, also, it's, you know, it's nice to go and think that of a family where something really horrible happened and none of them got to really go and live their full lives that maybe, just maybe, somebody had a brief chance. Yeah. Anna Anderson was institutionalized in 1920 after a suicide attempt in Berlin. Of Polish origin, the staff in the asylum mistook her accent for Russian. That is very possible because she could have been from a very Russian part of Poland. As fellow Poles, who low-key are not all about Russia, I like the idea of one of our own just really going into the most epic of trolls. I mean, this is the reality, is that she reportedly made her first statement that she was Anastasia to a nurse in the ward. Though confusion arose with another patient claimed that Anderson said that she was Tatiana, the second daughter. But either way, by 1922, her claim gained momentum when Captain Nicholas von Schweib, a high-ranking member of the emigre community, visited Anderson and believed her claim. When Schweb's encouragement, other emigres who had personally known the royal family came to visit. Not all were deceived. Baroness Sophie Boxenberg, former lady-in-waiting and intimate of Tsarina Alexandra, declared Anderson was too short to be Tatiana and denied she could be the missing Grand Duchess. To those family members who knew Anastasia best before 1918, Anna Anderson's claims were painful. The Dowager Empress Marie, the grandmother of Anastasia, refused to meet her. She also never posted any reward. Anastasia's aunt and Nicholas's sister, Grand Duchess, 
Countess Olga visited Anderson and lamented, I was looking at a stranger. Empress Alexandra's brother, Louis of Hesse, financed an investigation into his purported niece that concluded that Anderson's real identity was that of unstable Polish factory worker named Franciszka Szwawskowska. Yeah, roughly. Something along those lines. Well, we're probably missing a couple of accents there. But regardless, Anderson's fame increased upon her release. She emigrated to the United States where she received significant positive publicity. Gleb Botkin, a fervent supporter of hers and the son of the murdered imperial physician. So his dad was with the family up until the bitter end. I think for him, the idea of if this is really Anastasia, this is a person who my dad was Ew. still connected with. And so I, I have can, a connection to my I dad. I can still be connected to my dad. Oh, no. But it didn't matter. Like, they liked each other. But still. And oh, no. Oh, no. Anderson went to her grave in 1984 saying that she was Anastasia. But it wasn't until 1991 with the official discovery of Romanov skeletons that DNA testing determined she was not related to the imperial family. Yet the romance of a surviving heir from Nicholas and Alexandra's bloodline continues to enthrall the media and the Romanovs. In the hundred years since the execution of the Tsar and their children, our fascination with the Romanov dynasty has not faded. No, it definitely has not. Glamour, lavish lifestyle, as well as physical allure became world famous through photography and still novel concept at the turn of the century become rapidly accessible and one which the Romanovs embraced. Hundreds of photographs were taken of them by others and by themselves, launching them into an international celebrity never experienced before, especially within monarchy, where official portraiture had been the time-honored means of projecting a royal public image. Mm -hmm. The Romanovs were not considering posterity when they snapped candid pictures of themselves with box brownies on private yachts and holidays in Crimea, but the ultimate result was immortality that has spawned the decades of obsession. They became internationally renowned, capturing worldwide fascination with opulence and scandalous liaison separations, and later with their association with Rasputin, the harbinger of their doom. Dun dun dun. Don't you mean dun 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 dun? Look, Rasputin is a serious bop. I appreciate that it gives nods to you if you know history. I like how there are actually people out there who have danced to Rasputin and have not known that is actually referring to actual Rasputin. The level we said there, we said there was, there is a certain man in Russia long ago. He was big and strong, and his eyes were flaming gold. Most people look at him with terror and with fear. But to Moscow chicks, he was such a lovely dear. We should stop now. So at the onset of the tabloid era, photography was a tool that not only cemented the Romanovs as a family that seemed to have everything, but also as popular figures everyone would recognize, even as their privilege masked the turmoil under their facade. When the imperial family vanished in the 1917 revolution, it made international headlines. Speculation ran the gambit, from theories as outrageous as their secret abduction by German sympathizers to the more accurate supposition that Lenin had killed them. When news of the violent deaths reached outside of Russia, there were shockwaves. Suddenly, he was not Russia's last sovereign, but a man, a husband, a father. This heavily he was rom- all that before morons. exactly, and he was all that after too. This heavily romanticized notion of Nicholas II was aided by his allowance at the presentation of his family to the world. He wasn't shy about using his family, particularly his beautiful daughters and handsome young son, to evoke patriotism and loyalty to the throne. This is true. When the polls were down, he was bring out the children. See, you can't get mad. Look, they wear matching outfits. Adorable. Exactly. 
I mean, the man was an idiot, but he did know his PR, didn't he? Yeah. Well, and I think also it's the four grand duchesses and their archetypal personalities. You have Olga, the eldest, intellectual, independent one. Tatiana, the beautiful, elegant one. Marie, the sweet, flirty, good girl. Anastasia, the perfect enfant terrible, you know? Yeah. So they each fit into the, which one are you? Kind of thing. Like very Spice Girls or whatever one that is. Oh, no, it is Spice Girls. So between the morning massacre and the collapse of the Soviet Union, 73 years passed, and during this time, the Romanovs lived on in their pictures, frozen in time, without a conclusion to their saga. Their mystery gave rise to that series of imposters and the cult of Romanov survival. Mm. So there are two versions of the story, the real one and the fairy tale. You know, in 1997, the animated film of a cherished child of Russian ruling Romanovs is separated from family, injured, and they flee St. Petersburg. Memory lost, Anastasia is an orphanage, but she joins forces with two kind-hearted con men seeking to reunite her with Grandma, who offers a reward. And this is a remake of the 56 film with Ingrid Bergman and Yul Brenner playing the charismatic white Russian con man living in Paris who backs oh. her claims in hope of collecting a huge reward. But, but always, the big driving principle is, he turns down the reward because he'd rather have the honest love of the woman who is Anastasia. Two things. Number one, when you're a child, you think that animated Dimitri's the babe, but when you get older, it's all about Yul Brenner. Oh, no. Marty. Yul Brenner it's is the rumor, the legend, the, the mystery. mystery. Yes. It's the Princess Anastasia who will help us fly. You, you and, and I, Vlad, will go down in history. history. All right, we're stopping. The film actually won Bergman an, an Academy Award for Best Actress. She, I do know that. So the film's enduring fame spread the story of the Romanov pretender to even more people. So we had it from one level, which was newspapers, to now we have modern cinema, and then it's like almost on to the next generation. We had it in the cartoon form. Pierre Gilliard, the Swiss academic who had worked as a tutor to the Tsar's children from 1905 to 1918, wrote a book called The False Anastasia, but it did nothing to halt the stream of other books and television shows supporting the claim. A cornerstone of the Anastasia returned myth is the existence of the Romanov fortune. Mm. Millions of rubles of gold sitting unclaimed at the Bank of England. This is just as much of a fairy tale as anything else. Pulitzer Prize winning writer Robert K. Macy, who actually wrote a very serious and well-written biography called Nicholas and Alexandra, A++ by the way, Mm -hmm. which was made into a 1971 film, settled the question of the fabled inheritance in another book, The Romanovs, The Final Chapter. He wrote that there's evidence that Nicholas brought home whatever private money he and his wife had in British banks and used it to pay for hospitals and trains. A London bank archivist quoted saying, people keep asking and they don't take no for an answer. It's frustrating. Listen, if there's family money, it would have been coming out long ago. Well, yeah, because what does it go and say? Because it isn't all the Romanovs got eliminated. The money eventually would have gone to somebody. Yeah. So over the years, there have been many factors that have softened the views on the last Russian royal family. More and more accounts of gruesome murders have turned hate into pity, incompetence into helplessness, and was probably a miserable life for the family, even before their imprisonment, into something that embodies romance, sentiment, nostalgia, national religion, and myth. Mm -hmm. So, and this, you know, it it doesn't stop. Sort of blockbuster films, best-selling books, theatrical productions a broadway musical you know it just it starring ramin caramelow yeah she wasn't shot or stabbed in a pitless slaughter somehow she has to have escaped yeah it's always really interesting to me you can obviously go and run with this line of thinking across issues but how it's a listen i know that the truth is really depressing and we don't really like it but what do we actually materially gain or what do we lose when we deny history and And the 
deny reality. Fact. We, yeah, we deny reality. Well, and this is what's very interesting. So in 1979, we're still under the Soviet Union. Yes. So Geli Rybov, a filmmaker from the Soviet Ministry of Internal Affairs, randomly began a search with the help of a local geologist, Alexander Edovin, for the body of the murdered czar in a place known as Pig's Meadow, a few miles from Genayama. This hunt was strangely supported by the interior minister, who was a close associate of Leonard Brezhnev, the leader of the Soviet Union at the time. Brezhnev. Yes. Leonard Brezhnev. Brezhnev. How would you say any of it? We're really sorry. Leonard Brezhnev. It's all about having a good fake accent. Yeah. Trying to imitate our Babsha. But it's very interesting, though, why were you told to do this? Even even now, it's just very question mark. Why Why now? Yeah. However it came about, Rebov delivered three bullet-ridden sulfur-doused skulls to Moscow. There he tried to persuade Orthodox priests to help bury what he believed to be the remaining of the family transported to Pig's Meadow by their executioners from Ganayama after the villagers had discovered the original site. Ganayama. Ganayama. Yabba dabba doo time. When the, t- when the church authorities refused, fearing repercussions from the official atheist state, Rebov and Dovin returned their find to the Pig's Meadow, carved a line from the gospel on a makeshift cross, and waited for better times. So literally, they discovered the bodies, potentially, question mark? Yes. And then the church was, we don't want to do anything with this. Oh, we'll just put those back. Okay, put that thing back where it came from. (laughs) So help me, so help me. And cut. 1991, six months before the final dissolution of the Soviet Union, President Boris Yeltsin commissioned an investigation to exhume the remains of the nine bodies from Pig's Meadow. The ensuing seven years of archival research and forensic analysis by Russian and international experts included DNA collection, genetic testing, and confirmed that the remains belonged to the family of the Tsar and their attendants. Uh Eight decades after the killings, nine small coffins with imperial insignia were flown to the cradle of the revolution, uh, St. Petersburg. One notice absence, though, from the 1998 funeral was a leadership of the Russian Orthodox Church. Mm. Deacons, not bishops, recited the prayers for the dead. The reason the church was keeping its distance was the doubts of the authenticity of the remains. Among the reasons for the church skepticism was a discrepancy in where the remains were found. In the 1918 Skolov investigation named the shafts at Genayama as their resting place, but the bodies were finally reinterned were recovered from Pig's Meadow site. But only nine bodies were also found. But the number of people who were executed was 11 so it's wait what's happening here wait, wrong place and we're short two bodies you could be short some things but you don't ever want to be short two bodies yeah so most russian and foreign experts directly involved viewed those doubts as tangential like it's not that big of a deal um but they persuaded the church not to interfere with the funeral look we just want to sort of close this chapter let's just do this mm-hmm. in 2001 the church built a monastery at ganayama not pig's meadow the controversy did not and there. In 2007, an American group called Search, founded by emigre heirs to the investigation, discovered two bodies in another pit in Pig's Meadow. Mm-hmm. Despite overwhelming forensic DNA evidence, the church refused to recognize these remains as belonging to Nicholas's children, Alexei and Maria, because they were buried in the wrong place. I mean, it wasn't like they were doing a really great job burying them in the first place. I know. Hence why I was, this is important, why I have to let you know what a botch-up job it was post- Ugh. 
murder. In the confusion, the Russian state archives step forward, and by quirk of fate, the remains of Alexei and Maria, the Tsar's now saintly children, ended up in the same drawer as the skull and gold-toothed jawbone as Adolf Hitler. Oh, no. In 2015, under increased pressure from the Romanov family, another commission, this time created by Russia's prime minister, Dmitry Mendrev, finally ruled these remains authentic. But the funeral scheduled for October did not happen. Instead, the remains were handed over to the church for additional testing. Neither the nature of the test nor any deadline for their completion has been disclosed. Oh, wait, so this still hasn't been... This is still happening. Oh, Addressing God. the church leadership in 2016, Russian Orthodox leader Patriarch Kirill reaffirmed the church's doubts about the Yeltsin Nemskov Commission's conduct and praised President Vladimir Putin's decision to launch a new full-scale investigation. The Romanov family, largely kept in the dark, is still waiting on word from what the hell is happening from Russia. The church is... I was going to say something, but you know... Oh, no, who was always listening? Well, all you have to know is that this sort of turn of events of the rehabilitation of the image of the czar, especially by the church, and how the church has been used by Vladimir Putin in his reign in Russia, Yeah, it really creates this sort of weird new thing that's emerging. So it's given rise to a culture of ignorance and hysteria around the Romanovs, and at extremes, it's a movement that's come to be known as, I won't even want to say it in Russian, essentially Russia's czar worshippers, who go one step further than to sanctify everything that the czar did. The czar worshipping ideology is simple. The supposedly peace-loving Nicholas II sacrificed himself and his family to atone for the sins of the entire Russian nation. Oh! Yes. The Temple of Blood is no accidental place of worship. The Temple of Blood? That sounds like... Okay, but like, I have played every single game in the Souls series. That sounds like something that hit attacking Miyazaki be like, hmm, where am I gonna go and put this next boss fight? I know, the Temple of Blood! And for me, it sounds like the most Russian and the most metal thing that you could imagine. So it's built on the grounds of the old Ipetev merchant house, the site of their execution, or rather, 20 meters away, since the architects found that spot more impressive. Of course. Today, it's no less than a shrine to Nicholas II. Filled with icons and paintings, it contains a replica cellar and an extensive exhibition exalting the peace-loving, saintly nature of the Tsar Redeemer. A simple cross marking the actual location of the merchant house is naturally ignored by parishioners. The church seems no more to accept the weight of the Romanov's burial fate. Its leaders are too scared to entertain a major climb down. If they recognize the remains and hit at the heart of this movement, they show themselves to be idiots. So as of now, the family is still not together in resting place. That's so F. And I think that is sort of the saddest thing. This has become its own little religious circus mini ground Mm -hmm. that people who were very human, who live very human lives, don't even get the dignity of being buried together and just left in peace. Yeah. Their entire existence now is this religious Disneyland. (laughs) Man. So why do the Romanovs have such a hold? Other powerful dynasties have fallen, but no musicals, cartoons, miniseries, reimagined spinoffs have been made. It could be the shock of the execution, which suppressed the horror of even the deaths of the French monarchs, Marie Antoinette. That was horrific. Mm -hmm. But their daughter was spared. Yeah. Perhaps it's we can't simply accept that those with such privilege would end up as they did, although history is strewn with victims of violent upheaval. For whatever reason, the idea that a child could evade the Bolshevik death squad attracts us more than the cold truth. The Tony 
award-winning lyricist for the Anastasia musical wrote, I think the legend of Anastasia has persisted because we're all romantics, yearning for happy endings, especially in dark times. We want to imagine a lost princess really did find home, love, and a family in face of terrible odds. This is what spurs on the ant rumors of Anastasia's escape. People want to believe that the mischievous, unwanted youngest daughter of an emperor escaped her sad fate and lived a full and happy life. Their history was invoked as a morality play, a means of naming victims and persecutors, honoring good, chastising evil. Romanticizing Romanovs brings us back to an easily imagined past, one that had elegance and traditions and notions that seem hopelessly outdated today, yet it seems very comforting. Kind of like why we're all obsessed with watching Downton Abbey. Or we love Orphan Core. That one too. Yeah, that's sort of the story of how Anastasia's wild life. Her very small. Her very small, short, short life turned into a longer life than she would have had she been allowed to live an actual life. I think that's what's really the most bonkers thing now. Yeah. And that because of that, like anyone else who's sort of cut down before they even, not even in their prime, but before they can even hit a prime, mm-hmm. they have a longer eternity yeah. than they probably ever would have had a life. Or ever wanted. Or ever wanted. So that is that is Anastasia and all the sort of multiple coalescing factors. Why Anastasia? Out of all the girls, why Anastasia? I mean, personally, you know that I'm forever Marie Antoinette's bitch, but, you know, I get the vibe. Well, I guess the thing is with Anastasia, too, it's, you know, there were four girls. Why Anastasia? Because she was the youngest. She probably had the most affable personality. You gotta go and hope that the girl whose name meant resurrection could be resurrected in another form, in a new life full of possibility. Yeah, instead of, you know, resurrected in books, a miniseries, a movie series. Church of the Blood. Church of the Blood. Yikes. Ugh. Etc. Follow us for more research, fun facts, soundtracks, and aesthetic posts. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, Tumblr, and Twitter at Royal Diaries Pod.